Good morning. It's good to see a lot of people braving the weather today. I got to tell you, I'm tired of rain. Just saying that, putting that out there. But there's nothing I can do about it, so I will suck it up. So about a month and a half ago, I got a text from a former athlete of mine asking me if I would intern. She, she could be my intern, that I could work with her as an intern. And I said, okay, I'm not really sure what I can do for you, but why don't you tell me a little bit more about what you're looking for? And so she wants to go into a profession where she's gonna be working with kids in a sports setting where she can work with them so that they don't injure themselves as frequently as they seem to be getting injured. And I guess <clears throat> maybe she saw something in me as my athlete that I had some kind of knowledge about that. And she said, I want you to teach me basically how to, how to do this. How do I coach so that we mitigate injury to, to the best of the ability that we can. Injuries are going to happen. Sometimes it's just the way it is. But there are times and things that we can do as coaches that put our athletes into position where they're not hurting themselves. And so I said, sure. And so she's going to be my intern this summer, which is going to be kind of exciting for me. I hope it's exciting for her. <laughs> we'll see what happens at the end of the summer if she's still standing. Our message today is pretty much the same thing. Moses is going to God and saying, I want to be your intern. Teach me your way. Teach me what you know, oh God. This is the first of a series of three prayers that Moses has that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks in our series, Life in the Presence. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the passage today from Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 23. We're not going to be looking at the whole thing because the other prayers are part of this whole section, but we're going to be looking at a part of it. Exodus 33 verses 12 through 23, and says this. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, 
but my face must not be seen. Let me take a moment to pray. Father God, thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you've called us to yourself, that you've made a way that we have the opportunity to spend eternity with you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for the rain. Though I may be tired of it, Lord, it's what nourishes our earth. We need it. I pray, Lord, that your glory would be known today. I pray that the words that I would speak today would not be mine, but rather they would be yours. That anything that is from me today, Lord, will be quickly forgotten, never to be remembered. But those things that are from you, Lord, will be quickened into our hearts and into our minds, finding fertile soil in both places. That as we leave here today, we leave looking more like your son, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world. I pray this by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in Jesus' name. So last week, <clears throat> Brian spoke to us about the tent of meeting. The Jews were encamped at the base of Mount Sinai, and they put this tent away from the people because of the sin. God could not be in the tent close to the sin. And Moses would go over there and talk to God, and if anyone wanted to talk to God, they would come to the tent of meeting. And this is where we find... Moses now, he's at the tent of meeting, again, talking to God as a friend, as Brian described last week. We're going to take a look really at, at chapter, or verses 12 and 13, and, and really more so verse 13, because that's really where the meat of what we're talking about comes today. And let me start it by reading this again. Verse 12, Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me. Now, I'm going to stop there for a moment. If you are pleased with me. Moses, who got to experience the burning bush, who stood in front of the Red Sea and watched it get parted, and who went up and received the Ten Commandments. Kind of a big deal, all three. You'd think he'd have proof that God has found favor with him. And yet he says, if you have found favor, if I have found your favor, if you are pleased with me, here's what we need to know. Obviously, he knows that God has found favor with him. But just because he did then doesn't mean he's going to now or in the future. Moses understands this. This is an issue of humility. Humility. In spite of the fact that he did all these great things, he's not taking that for granted. What matters is right now. And Lord, I'm not worthy. If you find favor with me. And then he goes on. That's where it starts. If we want to know God's ways, if we think that he's going to teach us his ways, it starts by our becoming humble before our God, our creator. Sometimes that's hard for us. We, we're prideful. We don't like to give up on things. Chick has mentioned any number of times up here his issue is driving. Well, and he gets angry at people. Except for Chick, I think I'm probably the best driver in the world. So I have the same issues. People need to get out of my way. This is pride. That's not humility. 
There was a time when I was in my undergrad uh, days, and I had to write a paper with three other people. We had this big project to do. It was like a 20-page paper. Each person had to write five pages. And I volunteered to type the whole thing. And this was before computers were big, a big deal. So we had word processors or even typewriters still. And so they gave me their, their papers, and I'm typing away. And, and I'm looking at this stuff. And I, mind you, I'm not the greatest grammarian. I don't know grammar all that well. But holy cow. I, there were paragraphs I had no idea what they were saying. And I'm supposed to type this up so we could hand it in to the teacher. And I'm thinking, you don't know anything. Or it's a work project, maybe, that you, you've had. Where you had to work with other people. And, and it seems like they're dead weight. Or you're sitting here listening to a sermon thinking, why is he bringing this up? What's, he could have used this, this verse instead of that verse. We compare ourselves to each other. That's part of our sin nature. We need to get rid of that. We need to take that to God and be humble before him. Because he's the one that knows everything. And if we want to know what he knows, we got to give up ourselves. we got to sacrifice who we think we are so that he can show us who he wants us to be. So again, my intern was asking me, I don't know this information. Teach me. And I'm happy to do so. At the same time, I'm not the all-time expert in this matter. I go to clinics every year to learn. There are certain coaches that I go to to say, hey, I'm struggling with this athlete. How do I fix this? You know more than I do. Our prayer every morning needs to be humble, our, humble myself, Lord. Humble me so that I can know you. Humble me before you, Lord. Psalm 25, 9 says, He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. One facilitates the other. When we are humble, he will teach us. He goes on to say in, in verse 13, that I may know you. If, if you have found favor, if I have found your favor, Lord, teach me your ways that I may know you. What does it mean to know God? Well, I had two thoughts on this, and, and one, one thought's going to take a little bit of time, the other thought's a little quicker. It starts with this, and I, and I thought immediately of, of Proverbs uh, chapter 9, verse 10. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Sometimes it's translated as knowledge. It goes on to say, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If we want to truly understand God, we need to have a fear of the Lord. And there's six conditions, I'll say, that help us understand this fear of the Lord so that he can teach us. The first condition is that we will have a reverent awe in humility of God. A reverent awe. Not just cowering in fear of this enormous God. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants you to learn. He wants to teach you. But again, humility, if you're not willing to be humble before him, you're going to have a hard time learning about God. Reverend awe, be amazed at how big God is, how awesome that he can do things in the world. The miracles you've seen in your own lives. 
the miracles you've seen in others. I know there's miracles we'd like to see that don't happen, but that's still his choice. We still have the miracle of life that we can see because of what God has done. Psalm 66, verse 6 says this, He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. Pass through waters on dry land. That could refer to either the Jews walking through the Red Sea. This is a psalm of David. Or it could refer to how the river Jordan was dammed and they passed over into the land that was promised them. We're talking about two million people. It wasn't like he dammed it up for 10 minutes. Two million people aren't crossing the river or the Red Sea in 10 minutes. There was time that it took. And they passed on dry land, not damp, not muddy, dry. That's what our God can do. I personally am in awe of the concept of size in our universe. Not necessarily the size of the universe, but size in the universe. So there was, as an example, an interesting uh, video that I've seen on YouTube, some of you I'm sure have seen it, where it's this ranking of size of celestial orbs from our moon to the planets to stars. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it scrolls across the screen. It's really impressive to see the size of some of the stars that exist out there. How the biggest star, the hyper, a blue hypergiant, could probably fit all these other stars and planets inside of it with no problem, including our sun. Our sun looks huge next to Jupiter, the next largest thing in our solar system. The sun is, is piddly against some of these other stars in our galaxy. Tiny. That makes, I'm in awe of that. I'm in awe of what God can do. And yet, at the same time, there's life that exists that's microscopic, that, that has a lifespan. God created life that's microscopic. And stars that are mind-bogglingly large. I'm in awe of God. That's what I'm talking about as we learn to fear the Lord. The second condition is to, a desire to know him, a passion to know him, something that takes precedence in our lives, that we want to know him, that we make the effort to find ways to know him. Coming to church on a Sunday morning is certainly a start. Going to a small group, a Bible study, those are other ways to know God more intimately. Taking time for, for quiet time yourself. Maybe you're not reading the word, but maybe you're praying, listening to worship music. This is ways to know God, to desire him. Philippians uh, chapter 3, verse 8 says, But whatever were gains to me, this is Paul talking, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. A Pharisee of Pharisees, he's lost it all, and he doesn't care. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ, because that's what matters, Christ. For myself, I remember when I was uh, probably a teenager, I would think about my life and 
what does it look like moving forward and getting married and having kids? And I sort of thought, it'd be neat if I could have, kid, have a kid or two by the time I was 25. And then by the time I'm 50, they have a kid. So I'm a grandparent of 50. And then at 75, they had a kid. Right? You see the pattern here, 25. And then maybe I live to 100, and I see another generation. Here I am at 46. I have no children. God had other designs. That's just the way it was for me. And here's the thing that I've been learning and I've been rejoicing in. I'm okay with it because I want to know Christ more than I want to have a family. That's what matters. If God gives me a family, even better. But I want to know Christ more than anything else. I'm growing in that. There are still elements of my life that I'm not there yet. I'm sure there's elements in your life you're not there yet. But keep going with God. The third condition, develop a respect for power of his word. The scripture itself, the word of God, is God. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The power that, that, that the word has is life-infusing. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active because it's God, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I was uh, saved in November of 1992. Coming from a Jewish background, which some of you may not know, they didn't really teach us much about Jesus in synagogue. That's true. They don't really teach you much about Jesus. So I didn't know anything. I'd go to church, and I'm, I'm just like writing everything down. I have a Bible that's just like full of writing. It'd be neat to go back and look at some of that, how cool it is. I couldn't, I couldn't write things fast enough, and I was learning about God. And then early part of 1995, I was going through a bit of a personal crisis, and, and I was struggling. And I'm like, God, what's going on? And I don't understand. And fortunately, I had a roommate, and he, he gave me a book. And I've, I've mentioned this book before, and it's, the elders are okay with that. Dr. Neil Anderson's Victory Over the Darkness. And I, I read that book one chapter a day, just focused on it, took notes. I really wish I could find those notes. But it was really awesome. Because all that head knowledge dropped the 12 inches into my heart. He laid out with scripture my identity in Christ. That's what I didn't understand. I was doing a lot of Christian things because that's what my brain said to do. But to move in my daily life required knowledge in my heart and the passion in my heart. And through that crisis, that's where I developed that. That's where I learned that. It was the word of God that touched me through that book. So that's the third condition. The fourth condition of learning to fear God is the hatred of evil and sin. The hatred of evil and sin. God hates evil. God hates sin. How do I know? Because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to remove it from our lives, to eradicate it forever. That cross is empty. That grave is empty. 
It has been dealt with. The very thing he hates the most, he has found a way to deal with it. That's the gospel. When we believe that Christ died on the cross with our sin because we couldn't, we would be incapable of being the atoning sacrifice for our own sin. When we believe on that, God looks at us and says, you are my child. You are a co-heir with Christ. You gain eternal life in heaven with God the Father. God hates sin and evil in our lives. It's still there for us as we walk about this world. But as we grow in our fear and knowledge of God, our hatred of both evil and sin grows. Proverbs 8.13 says, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. Pretty much says it right there. Makes it easy. On, I think it was Friday night, I was watching the news, and there was a news item, like so many, where there was a shooting in Philadelphia, and some of you may have seen it at, at a prom party, and a young man in his early 20s was killed. The only, only bullet that struck anyone, and it killed him. And I remember thinking in that moment, and this is something God is working with me on. I hope they catch the guy, of course. I hope they convict him. But I'd like for them to just throw out how they do the sentencing and just say, eh, death and immediately. You deserve it. That's what my human nature wants. To eradicate this person who had such little regard for life that he just pulls out a gun and shoots indiscriminately. No one knows why he did this. Of course, I haven't caught him yet. I'm angry at that. But see, God reminded me, as much as I don't want to believe this, the man who pulled that trigger, Christ died for him. Were I to face him somewhere and found out that that's what, what he did, I know that God would say, he needs the gospel. Much like Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh, I wouldn't want to go and talk to this guy for, about Christ. And yet, Christ still died on the cross for him. He hates the evil and sin that exists, but he loves the sinner. Loves the sinner. He loved me. He saved me. For those of you who call Christ Lord and Savior, he loved you and saved you. The fifth condition, as we learn to fear God, is the experience of the fountain of life. Eternal life is given to us. We get to experience it. It's hard to experience it in the muck of this world. But sometimes it pokes through. Proverbs 14.27 says, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning a person from the snares of death. How glorious that is. As I was preparing this, I was thinking, have I experienced the fountain of life? And, and here's the example that I think I had that I believe embodies this. And this, this happened a number of years ago, and this has happened since. It's just not every day like I wish it were, but I was, uh, it was like a weekend, like a Friday or Saturday. And I had a group of friends that were going out to go somewhere and another group of friends that were going to a church to a concert, like a worship concert. 
And they're like, well, where do you want to go? It's like, well, you know what, I'm going to go to the, the worship concert. Now, where the other group of friends was going was also kind of like a church function thing, so it wasn't like it was choosing, let's go do drugs versus let's go to a church concert. <laughs> um, so it would have been a good, way, good choice either way. But I remember standing there at this concert, worshiping, praising, singing, and thinking, there is no place else in the world I'd rather be than right here, worshiping God. I could be having the same fun time somewhere else, but this is where I want to be. And as I was thinking about that, that to me is a little bit of that fountain of life bubbling through in this world, in my heart in that moment. And like I said, I've had other instances through my daily lives, my daily life where I've felt that way. At the men's retreat this past uh, March, there was a moment I said, you know what? There's no place else I'd rather be than right here. We get to experience the fountain of life, life eternal, but look for those moments where you can say, there's no place else I'd rather be. The final condition is, as we learn to fear the Lord, a hope in the Lord. A hope in the Lord. His promises will endure. The promises of God, of eternal life, will endure. The promises of the world, eh, they don't. They won't. They can't fulfill us. As much as we may search them out, because we want happiness right now, right this minute. No. The world will fail us. 1 Timothy 6.17 says this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. The wealth of the world is meaningless. The world's promises, they don't equal or they don't necessarily guarantee a future hope. Sometimes people get lucky, and things they do, they make them happy. But then time moves forward, and they're looking for something else to fulfill, to bring that joy. And maybe they get lucky again, maybe they don't. But either way, at the very end, unless they know Christ, they won't be fulfilled, and they won't have eternal life with God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 says this, The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. Whoever does the will of God lives forever. This world will pass away. All the wealth, all the fame, all the status, gone. But you get to live in heaven if you know Christ those are the six conditions that, as we learn to fear God, will help us develop and understand who God is, that he can teach us. Why does Moses want to be taught? So that he can know him, but he can continue to find favor with God. He says it again. 
to continue to find favor. Again, he realizes it's not a one-shot deal. Like, oh, I have favor? Great. I can go do whatever I want because I have favor with God. It's an every day, every moment action that we need to be focused on. Trying to develop that favor with God. Why? Why does Moses want this? In, in his circumstances, he's leading God's people. He's leading God's people. It's like two million Jews sitting in the desert. And by the way, they now have a new moral code that he has to teach them. And they didn't have air conditioning, I'm sure. So they're sitting there in the heat learning about this new moral code. What a responsibility to lead this people around wherever they're going, they don't even know, and learn who this God is and what that means for them in their lives. I'm pretty sure there's no one in here leading two million people with a new moral code. Anyone? Just, just checking. Okay. Because I hadn't been hearing about that on the news. But still, we have a responsibility as we so often say here, where we live, where we work, and where we play, a responsibility to make sure that we are who we need to be through God's grace for the next generation. Or if it's where you work, or where you play, or where you go to school, for the people who don't know Christ, to be that example. God will teach you as you go along. It's an ongoing process, and there's no end to it until he comes back. Until he comes back. Once he comes back, you're going to just be praise and worship God. You will know what you need to know in heaven, and you'll learn whatever we need to learn. I have no idea what heaven's like, to be honest with you. I'm looking forward to it, but I don't know. But I do know that right now I have a responsibility where I live, where I work, and where I play. The second thought that I had when I was preparing this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And I've mentioned it before in other sermons, but this is the holiest prayer for Jews, the Shema. Verses, verse 4 is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And then verse 5 is, You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But the interesting part that I learned over and over and over again sitting in Hebrew school on twice a week at these services that we just memorized just because we did it so often was, that the, was the next verses that talk about what we're supposed to do with that. Verse 6 says, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children or teach them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Is there any time here where we're not talking about it? Lie down, get up. When you're walking on the road, when you're at home. That's all the time. If you're not there, you're somewhere else, and you're supposed to be talking about it then. Verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. 
this is a reminder that no matter where you are, to remember these critical prayers. The Lord is one, and that we need to love him with everything that we have. And just so you know, in, in verse 8 where it talks about um, symbols on the hands and binding them on your arms, uh, Orthodox Jews in particular will use what's called tefillin. And it's a little box. They, have, they put it on their arm, and then there's a big, long leather strap that they wrap around their arm. And there's a second box that they put on their head, <clears throat> and they wrap that on as well. And inside the boxes is parchment with this very prayer called the Via Hafta, this whole section, verse 4 through 9, the Via Hafta. And in that box is this parchment that has those prayers. And this one is close to the heart. And they go into their service and they pray. They pray to God. Heart, soul, and strength. So that explains verse 8. Verse 9 is, as many of you are, I'm sure, are familiar with mezuzahs on the homes of Jewish people. If you look at their doorway, there's a, there's a, a little thing on the doorframe. It should be on an angle. Right? There's, there's rules to how all this how it gets put up, and where it's supposed to go, and all this kind of stuff. Okay? Every Jewish home. And again, same thing, a little parchment inside with this, the Via Hafta, verses 4 through 9, as a reminder, this is who you are, and this is what you believe. I'm going to put a challenge out there to you folks. Get a mezuzah, put it on your house. As a reminder, very simple. They don't cost a lot. Some of them are very ornate. Very interesting. You'll have people coming into your house, hey, you're not Jewish. No, I'm not, but let me tell you. Let me tell you about God. What a great opportunity. People coming in your house, never seen it before. All of a sudden, what's this? But it's a reminder of who your God is and what he has done for us. We're to teach the next generation but we need to be taught first. Psalm 86.11 says this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness, or some translations say, I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I'm going to have a song played for you. Unfortunately, it won't show up on the DVD uh, or on the internet because of copyright issues. But take a moment in this moment to reflect. Listen to the song. It's only about two minutes long. It's really just a chorus. It's, it's this. It's 8611. Psalm 8611. Set the music. Teach me your way, O Lord that I may rely on your faithfulness, or that I may walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart, that I may fear your name. Remember, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much again for who you are, how awesome you are, Lord. You are all we need. You are enough. Teach us 
Help us to fear you in a reverent awe. Help us understand that what that means in our daily lives. Help us to grow in our knowledge of you. That we may continually to find favor with you because of it. Just thank you and praise you so much for what you're doing here and in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.